Hi, good morning, Missio. Today's reading is Revelation 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, and who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Well, I'm back. <laughs> Um, as you can tell from that reading, today we begin a brand new series in the book of Revelation. And that series we are calling Kingdom Come. And I just want to say at the beginning that I feel excited. Uh, a little a bit of trepidation, though. This is a big thing for us to undergo. And we're going to be in it um, for a while. So I just want you to understand, you've got to buckle up because it's going to be here all summer long. Uh, the book of Revelation... I think one of the reasons that we wanted to do it is because it is arguably the strangest and most difficult to read books of the Bible. It is full of such like strange and evocative languages. You have weird images, cryptic pictures. And as we read the book of Revelations, we're kind of just left with all these questions. What do we do with these images? What do we do with these stories? What do we do with this maybe like prediction or prophecy of future times. What do we do with any of this? Because it is evocative and powerful, and yet it is very rarely clear. Very rarely throughout the book of Revelations, you get a moment where it's like, this is what this means. This directly corresponds to these things. It is easy to understand this. Like the writer of the book never makes it easy for us to understand what's happening. And I think because of that, Maybe more than any other book, Revelation has led to some real strange interpretations. If you were uh, a Christian kid or an adult in the 90s, early 2000s, you might remember the Left Behind series. Anybody remember the Left Behind series? Uh, I, had to do some, I had to do some research. I grew up in the 90s, you know, so I, I read Left Behind. I read Left Behind for teens. Um, but what I, here's what I didn't the, the world goes deep. Uh, you might remember, oh, hold on, back one time. You might remember the Left Behind movie. Uh, anybody, Kirk Cameron stands here? What I, but in 2014, just to show you the popularity of Left Behind, Nicolas Cage bought the rights to Left Behind and redid a movie. This was like 2014. Anybody seen the Nicolas Cage Left Behind movie? What are you doing? This is a, a work of cinematic brilliance, I've heard. <laughs> I can't even get over just their, both their faces. 
the books, when they came out, they sold recently, I, I saw a number, 65 million copies of the Left Behind series were sold. They did these movies. There was a series of video games. I didn't know that. A series of video games of Left Behind. And then just recently, in 2016, Haley, you can go to the next one, uh, a teen version of Left Behind came out called Vanished. Um, and I, when I saw this cover, I feel like it, it, it reminds me of something. Now just think about it for a second. What does this cover look like to you? Yeah, 100%. You can put up the next one. <laughs> vanished, vanished is like Twilight for good Christian kids, I think is what we learned from this lesson. Like if you grew up in one of those camps where it's like, no, you can't read Twilight. It's about vampires, vampires of the devil. They were like, instead of that, you can watch this show <laughs> about disappearing. Uh, <laughs> the Vanished. Oh, boy. Now, we will talk throughout this series, this was mostly just for fun, throughout this series, we will talk about the theology of the Left Behind series, we will explore what it says, what it means, why it says those things, but mainly the reason I wanted to reference either of those here was because I think the popularity of the Left Behind series and the prolification of, like, end-time entertainment speaks to our own level of interest the way that the book of Revelations has captured our imaginations, has captured our cultural imaginations in many ways, the way in which it is so provocative to us. There is something very interesting about this book. And as that is true of like Christian pop culture, it's also true of theologians and philosophers throughout time. Martin Luther, uh, the very famous church reformer, so we think of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, This is what he said about the book of Revelations. He said, They, Christians, are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book. And yet no one knows what it says. This is Martin Luther. He was like, what? How are they supposed to be blessed? They have no no idea what it is to say nothing of how to keep it. Now, this was the tamest quote about Revelations I can find from Martin Luther. This was the tamest. I just got to be honest with you. Um, not a theologian, but a philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, I thought this was actually a very interesting quote. He said about Revelations that it was the most rabid of vindictiveness in all recorded history. When Nietzsche says that what you did was vindictive, you have a problem. (laughs) This is a person who believed that justice was rooted in envy. I don't know how you get that message. And then Tina Pippin, who is actually a New Testament Scholar said that Revelations comes off like a misogynist male fantasy at the end of time. <laughs> and I posted in um, our IG account, like, hey, we're about to do a series in Revelations. Does anybody have any questions? And you were so much kinder than Martin Luther or Nietzsche or Tina Pimpin, but had similar kinds of questions. One person responded just simply with the word hell and then question mark, which I think is a very good question to ask about the book of Revelations. Hell? Um, somebody else said this, which I think is very funny. Uh, this is a quote, so don't, don't, don't get mad at me. This is a quote. How do we read it and understand what the hell is going on? End quote. Again, a very good question. And I think all of these questions, all of these responses, all of these ideas that are being said, they totally make sense as you read the book of Revelation, as you walk through the narrative and you see the strange images and you see the strange stories and the language that is so foreign to us, I think all of these questions make sense. And yet, Revelation, I think we'd all say, is also full of such beautiful imagery. 
As you come to the very end of the book, you get this moment where Jesus is sitting on the throne and he says, behold, I make all things new. There will be no more weeping or crying. And you're like, that's a beauty. So like our hope and our big stories of what this gospel movement is about also find their end in the book of Revelation. And so we try to hold both of those tensions together, these beautiful moments of the culmination of Jesus's work with, on the other side, very strange, hard to interpret, difficult images that have then just run wild in our cultural imagination. So what do we do with this book? What do we do with the letter of Revelation? Well, today, as we begin this series, I want to begin pretty simply. I just want to try to help us find a bit of a roadmap to the book of Revelation. Just a bit of a way to get ourselves anchored, a bit of a way to find some like points to navigate ourselves to. So we're just going to ask three questions of the book of Revelation today. The first question is very simple. What is the book of Revelation? What is it? Second, how do we read it? And third, why should we read it? That was the question Martin Luther wrestled with. Should Christians even read this book? So what is the book of Revelation? How do we read it? And why should we read it? And maybe a part of that final question, why are we doing it now as a community? So if you have a Bible or you just want to look on the screen, here's how the book of Revelations begins. Here's how it introduces itself to us. Revelation 1, verse 1. It says this, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Super helpful. Revelation is the um, Greek word apocalypsis, which is a very spooky word. And I think immediately connotes a lot of ideas. It brings with it all of maybe the baggage we have around interpreting the book of Revelation. And I think often what we believe the book of Revelation is this, is some kind of prediction about the destruction of all things. I think that's kind of the way that we approach the book of Revelation, that maybe there's some good letters to people, maybe there's some instructions to people, but primarily what the book is, or the, the most difficult parts of the book, are predictions about the end of all things. So I want to take that statement and just explore it for a second, because there is some truth to it, but also some large misnomers. And here's the first one that I think really sets us up for understanding what the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation is not predictive. It's prophetic. And there is a big difference between predictive literature and prophetic literature. We often confuse these two ideas together, thinking that prophecy is primarily future seeing. And it can be. Throughout the biblical narrative, you can find prophets who get a vision by God, something that's going to happen in the future. But the vast majority, the vast majority of prophetic literature in the Bible is far more like preaching than it is future seeing. It is a prophet, a person who's been called by God, reading the story of God and speaking to the people of Israel or the New Testament church about what it is they are experiencing in that very moment. Here's what's happening in your life. Here's how God's words might open it up or unveil something about it. Here's how the law or the previous writers or the historic church could understand this moment. It's far more about God's words to God's people in this moment. New Testament Bible scholar Michael Gorman says it this way, prophecy in the biblical tradition is not exclusively 
or even primarily about making pronouncements and predictions concerning the future. Rather, prophecy is speaking words of comfort and challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete historical situation. Prophecy is speaking words of comfort or challenge on behalf of God to people in their concrete historical situation. That's important to understand about the book of Revelation. Revelation, if it is anything, it is a letter that is written to seven churches. And we'll explore those seven churches in the weeks to come, but it's a letter that this elder of the church who loves these people writes to this church. And these churches have experienced division, and they've experienced strife, and they have experienced opposition. Some historians suggest that the moment that this letter is written is during the reign of Nero, and the church experiences its most severe form of persecution under Nero. It's when it's spread out into the world. And so if that's true, then this is kind of a tenuous moment for the New Testament church. And on top of that, all the apostles are gone. Jesus has ascended and the Spirit is with them, but the leaders that were so connected to Jesus are gone. Some debate if John the Apostle is writing this book, or maybe it's John, an elder of the church. We're not exactly sure. So if that's true, John, if it's the Apostle, would be the last remaining Apostle writing these fatherly, kindly, elderly words to a church about their current moment in strife, in division, in hardship. As they're about to enter into life without any of the original followers of Jesus. Revelation is a letter, it's a guide to encourage this church, to challenge them, to call them into something. Now, saying that it is not predictive might sound confusing because there is moments throughout the book of Revelation where we hear about the coming kingdom. We hear about what God is going to do in the world. But when I use the language of not predictive, I really want to capture the idea that Revelation is not trying to help us understand when something's going to happen or even exactly how something's going to happen. It's not trying to give us exact dates. In fact, many Christian communities, not just like weird Christian communities, just like normal Christian communities, have tried to use Revelation to predict the end of the world. They're always wrong. Somebody I love. I love John Wesley. John Wesley believed the world was going to end in 1836. Maybe it did. I don't know. That's not my experience. (laughs) Right? It is not helpful and it is not intended to be predictive, to be exacting. So if it is not exacting, then what do we do with all the destruction language of the book of Revelation? Well, that leads to the second part of this statement. I said at the beginning that sometimes we believe Revelations as predictions about the destruction of all things. So if it's not predictive, what is it? Well, apocalypsis, that word that we often connect with destruction, What it translates to most accurately, or most literally in the Greek, is unveiling. Apocalypsis means to unveil something. Or it's why the moment in Revelations, most translations, NIV, CEV, ESV, will use the word revelation. It reveals something. An apocalyptic is a kind of literature, not simply an event that we talk about. In the ancient Near East, apocalypse was a literature that people would write in a way of describing the world, a way of talking, and it uses strange or evocative language. That's part of the genre. 
Now, when we hear that strange and evocative language, we have a tendency, I think because we want this to be predictive, to get real, like, minute on the language that we hear. And we try to find very exact reference in our day for what we have heard in the book of Revelation. And I found a few examples of how we have done this historically. Sometimes when I was a kid, it happened a lot. We would read about Rome or Babylon, and for some reason, sorry, I know why, we always connected it to the United Nations, like that was the evil empire that the Bible was describing, which I think really reveals a bit of a, you know, political assumptions. Um, yikes! That's amazing. Sometimes uh, you will read about Antichrist in the book of Revelation, and there has been lots of different Antichrists predicted throughout the Bible or throughout church history and culture. Some people believe that Hitler was the Antichrist. Some people believe that Napoleon was the Antichrist. Some people believe that Obama was the Antichrist. Then you have the moment of the very famous 666, the mark of the beast. That one has been popping up a lot in culture recently because um, some people believe that it might be uh, administered to us through the vaccine. Some people believe the mark of the beast is microchips. Many scholars believe that the mark of the beast is a way that 666 is a way of using numbers to correspond to Greek alphabet to describe Nero. And some people took that idea literally and said, it's not about Nero, it's about Ronald Wilson Reagan, who has six letters in each of his names. (laughs) Pretty cool. So when we get very predictive about the language in this moment, we start to miss something. It is apocalyptic language in that it is a genre of literature. And it uses provocative and evocative language in order to do something in us. Revelation is not trying to predict something with exact definition. Instead, the book of Revelation and the language it uses is trying to help us see what is. One Bible scholar says it this way, apocalypse is a vision of heavenly secrets that can make sense of earthly realities. Revelation is trying to help us see the world the way that God does. It is trying to give us an imagination for what is actually happening in the world around us. That We so often want to reduce the world. We so often want to simplify the world. We so often want to get caught up in other smaller understandings of the world. And the book of Revelation, in using apocalyptic language, and using intense and provocative imagery is trying to disrupt the way that we normally look at this world and see that something more is going on. That there is something fermenting under the surface, that there is something in the cosmos that's happening. It is not as simple as we think it is. The predictions of Rome are not trying to say that we should look for an exact Rome. Instead, it's trying to show us that there are many Romes. There are many antichrists. There are probably many marks of the beast because they are iterations of a bigger and older problem. And we are always going to have to interact with Romes or antichrists or marks of the beast. We're always going to have to wrestle with what does our faith look like when it's up against an empire opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. We're always going to have to have that wrestle, but we often don't see it because we live life regularly in Rome. 
or America or wherever we are, and we get used to and accustomed to the way that life is in these places. And so the language of Revelation is to get us uncomfortable with life here and now. So it's to make us see what is really happening under the surface of it all. It is to unveil, to pull the veil away from our eyes so that we might really see what is happening in the world around us. So what is the book of Revelations? Well, it is an unveiling, a revealing. What is really happening in the world around us? Of what God is doing in the world around us? Of what kind of conflict is actually happening in the world around us? It's not exacting predictions, though there is prophecies, there is even hope of the future, but it is an unveiling. And it unveils because it wants to call us into worship. In verse 3 of that Revelation chapter 1, here is what the writer goes on to say. He says, this revelation of Jesus, for what purpose? He says, as favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud. Out loud. And favored are those who listen to it being read and keep what is written for the time is near. As we said at the beginning, Revelations was written as a letter to churches, and it was meant to be read aloud. Actually, most of the New Testament was meant to be read aloud, but in this moment, the writer says specifically, like, blessed are those who read it aloud. And the habit of the early church would be they would get a letter, they would gather together in this way, and then they would read the letter. Because a letter was kind of like a sermon from the apostles or from the elders, and they would read it to these, like, separated and dispersed communities, and then they would talk about the letter and be like, what does it mean? How do we interpret it? And so the elder John, who's writing this letter, says, send it to the churches and read it out loud, because blessed are those who hear it. Revelations is a book that is meant to be heard, meant to be listened to, because it is meant to call us into worship. In some ways, the book of Revelations is like a worship song or a worship set that we would do in church. It's full of strange and big language that draws us into something. And what it's trying to draw us into is the person of Jesus. It's trying to point us to who is Jesus and why do we gather and why do we celebrate and what is our hope and what is our expectation and what are we centered on and what makes us different than Rome or America or Babylon or Canada? Like what separates these places from us? And it's like, oh, because we are a community that is called and centered on the person of Jesus. And so we're going to read this story out loud and you're going to hear images of heavenly things worshiping, not because it's trying to predict exactly what heaven's going to be like, but it's trying to tell us that we have reason to worship now. That there is hope in this moment and we are called to be a different kind of community. You can even say that we are called to be an apocalyptic kind of community, one that unveils something, that reveals something because we are centered on the worship of Jesus. So Revelations unveil something and then you could say that Revelations is like a liturgy. It's a book of worship that calls us and centers us on the person of Jesus. And this is important for us to hear because what we'll encounter a lot throughout the book of Revelation 
is that there is a lot of things we can worship in the world. This letter comes to the early church, as we've said, in the midst of Rome. And in Rome, worship and politics and civil life are all tied up to one another. Sounds a little familiar. Rome has gods that it worships and orders its life around. And what Revelation is trying to do is reveal those false gods, reveal the kingdom that is established on those false gods, reveal the way that we order life upon those false gods and call the church into something different, into the worship of Jesus, into a society or the church that is established on the worship of Jesus. So it calls us to worship and it centers us in worship because our worship determines the kind of society that we create. It calls us away from false worship and false kingdoms and into the worship of Jesus. And this leads to the third thing that the book of Revelation is about. It is about politics, kingdoms, and our allegiance. In Rome, these things are all connected. What you worship, the society that you live in, the citizenship that you claim, the kingdom that you give allegiance to— Scholar Michael Gorman says it this way, Revelation is a theopolitical text. And that's a tricky word, I think, for us, because if you've grown up in America, then you hear theopolitical, you might be like, mm, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know that I want my government run by Christians. That's not what he's saying. He says this, it makes claims about who is truly God, about what is right and wrong, about right and wrong connections between God and the sociopolitical order, it challenges the political theology of an empire and the religious ideology that underwrites it. And it reveals God and the Lamb alone as the true sovereign one. The early church is struggling to hold on to its identity in the midst of Rome. They are assimilating to life in Rome. We'll see this in the next couple of chapters, that they grow comfortable, they grow rich, or they have trouble separating out, like, what is my life versus Roman life? What does citizenship in Rome look like? What does life in Ephesus look like? They're struggling not to assimilate to life in Rome. And so what Revelations does is it reveals, it unveils that assimilation. It names it for what it is. It calls the church to center on Jesus, and then it describes what is the kingdom or the church of Jesus supposed to look like? What does King Jesus look like? Because it's very different than the Roman Caesar or the politics of our day. What is the people of Jesus supposed to look like? So that's what Revelations is. It is an unveiling. It is a text about worship. And then it is an invitation to be the people and kingdom of Jesus. Now with that said, how do we read this book? Well, those three things give us a clue, right? They help us unravel certain assumptions and certain ideas. Instead of it trying to make this book about prediction, it's an invitation to see what God is doing now. We can read the book of Revelation as a call to worship that's centered on Jesus, and we can read it as a challenge to false kingdoms and a display of Jesus' kingdom.
But I think all of that, that starts to point us to a way to read this book. Sometimes we refer to how we read the Bible as a hermeneutic. So what is our hermeneutic of the book of Revelation? The lens that we use, the way that we see it, the way that we interpret it. And, and this is what we have. I think the letter gives us a clue. It starts in verse 1, and I'm also going to read verse 5. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, A revelation of Jesus, and then verse 5, and from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. We read Revelation through the lens of Jesus. And primarily, we read Revelation through the central image of Jesus on the cross. Often throughout the book of Revelations, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb who was slain. In chapter 4 and 5, we'll see this later, chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation are kind of considered like this is the central moment. If you want to understand the book, you you look at these two moments. And in chapter 5, verse 6, there's this declaration being made. And it says, In between the throne and the living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as if it had been slain. And the elders go on to worship and say, Worthy is the Lamb because he was slain. The lamb who was slain is the image that makes sense of every other picture and event in this book. And I cannot, I don't know there's anything I can say that's more important than this. If we separate the crucified Jesus from the book of Revelations, we will, I think, turn the book of Revelation into exactly what Nietzsche feared or exactly what Tina Pimpin feared. That it will be vindictive and it will be a misogynistic male vindictiveness or whatever. It will be something that is foreign and abhorrent to the person of God. Because you cannot understand Revelation outside of the self-sacrificial God who gives of themselves over and over, who absorbs violence and enmity and hostility into themselves to make room for the other. So if we separate those two images out, of course, Revelation is going to look barbaric. But if we take Revelations and we look at it through the lens of Jesus on the cross, then I think we actually begin to find a way to make sense of some of the most confusing and difficult images. One of my favorite is sometimes we see Jesus coming in a white robe and he shows up to a battle and there's blood on the hem of his robe. And you can interpret that in two ways. Ignore the cross and you see Jesus show up to a battle and he's got blood on his robe and you're like, oh, he's about to people. You're like, but it's interesting that he shows up to the battle already bloodied. Oh, I wonder if that's because he's the lamb who was already slain. Or sometimes you see Jesus wield a sword, and you're like, where did he get that sword? He's like, oh, he always pulls it from his mouth because it's the word. Like, oh, there's a different articulation of what's happening in this book as we see it through the lens of Jesus on the cross. But as soon as you separate those two images, then... Revelations runs wild with, I think, more of our culture than the person of Jesus. So how do we read the book of Revelations? Well, we look at it through Jesus. We compare, we contrast, and we wrestle with the images. And if they don't look like Jesus, then we just keep wrestling. That's okay. It's okay to wrestle with the text. It's okay to not understand it. It's okay to feel tension about the text. Sometimes I think we feel this need to like smother doubts about the text. It's okay to hold those and to continue to wrestle with these images that feel uncomfortable in light of who Jesus is. And we just continue to wrestle until we understand how they reveal 
Jesus. Because no matter how weird any of this gets, it is still a story, as verse 5 says, of the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. That does not change throughout the book of Revelation. That is the central Jesus truth of the book. All right, mister, so that leads to this final question. Why are we reading it? Why should we read it at all? I think the text gives us a bit of a clue. In verse 6, it says this. Jesus, who is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and always. Amen. We have been called and formed, according to Jesus and John in this moment, or 1 Peter 2, 9, or Exodus 19, into a kingdom. Now, it's not a kingdom that works like normal kingdoms. It's meant to look different than Rome. It's meant to look different than America. It's meant to look different than corporate culture, or whatever the different kingdoms of our world is. But we have been formed into a kingdom that's centered on the worship of King Jesus, and that works and looks like and acts like the crucified King Jesus. And so we have to center ourselves and hear this story because we, like the early church, far too often assimilate to cultures that are not Jesus or assimilate to kingdoms that are not Jesus's. So that's why we read the book of Revelation. A lot vies for our attention in this world. A lot vies for our allegiance in this world. A lot claims our hearts and our minds and our loves in this world. So we need to see the world the way that God does, to have our false worship unveiled and to have it disrupted by this intense language of the book of Revelations. We need to be revealed so that we can see our assimilation, that we can see our idolatry, that we can see that we have been bound so that we might be freed to live centered on the worship of King Jesus. That's why we read the book of Revelation. In some ways, you could say that's why we read the whole Bible. As weird as the book of Revelation is, it is actually not that much different than the rest of the Bible. It's a story about Jesus. It's trying to call us out of our old ways of being, our flesh, our desires, our old kingdoms. As Paul said a couple weeks ago as we were reading, out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's what the whole Bible is doing. And so we read the book of Revelation for the same way we read the Gospels or Peter's letters or Paul's letters. Because it points us to the person of Jesus. In fact, Monsieur, that's the same reason that we gather. To point each other to the person of Jesus. Jesus. We sing these songs, we hear this word, we gather at the table to point ourselves to the person of Jesus, to be formed into a people of King Jesus, to have our normal ways of life disrupted and revealed for what they are so that we might live free, centered on the worship of Jesus. So, Monsieur, that's why we're going to do this series through the summer. That's why we read the book of Revelation. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we gather. To be centered on the person of Jesus. So, Mr., as we close today, will we leave this place centering ourselves in the person of Jesus? 
What does it mean for us to be a people of King Jesus? Where do we give allegiance and accidental even assimilation to kingdoms that are opposed to King Jesus' kingdom? Where do we need to be disrupted and have our lives revealed? Where do we need to recenter on the worship of Jesus? Would you just bring those questions with you and then I will pray for you and then you should have communion elements somewhere around you handed into you. We do communion as a practice of centering ourselves on Jesus. This moment that symbolizes what Jesus' kingdom is like, that it's actually so different than the normal kingdoms that we have seen. It is like a wedding feast. It is like a table where he has provided for us to belong. And so let me pray for you, and then would you take communion as a practice of centering yourself on Jesus, and then let's continue to worship. Again, as an activity to center us on the worship of Jesus and be formed into a people of Jesus. Jesus, help us to hear your words today. And to more than anything else, would we see you in it? Would we wrestle with all of the weird images that we bring that actually don't belong there? Would we wrestle with our baggage and our our pain around it? Would we wrestle with the strange cultural stories we've heard? Would we wrestle with all the different ways that we try to interpret Revelation without you in it? And would you challenge our images? Would you disrupt our assimilation? Would you reveal our false allegiance? Not to shame us or to judge us, but to lead us into the freedom of a life that is centered on the worship of you. Jesus, today and through this week and as we continue this series, would you help us become a people of you? who live into your kingdom of the Lamb who is slain, who operate by Lamb power, not the world's power, but yours, who look like you, not the world, who act like you, not the world, who make space in ourselves for these around us, who give and give and give because we have so generously received. God, make us your people.